keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Again, that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for this great gift. As with so many of your gifts, it's easy to take this one for granted. Easy to neglect it. Easy to put it off. Easy to read it without thinking, pondering its message. So I pray that this morning we would value this gift. We would treasure it. We would realize what a rich blessing it is to be together as your people around it and in it. We pray that you would guide us this morning by the Holy Spirit. We thank you this is your word. And we pray that your word would speak to our hearts. That you would show us more clearly our need of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When you study uh, the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, it really is amazing. I pointed this out before in other contexts. But it's amazing how much of the gospels, that is how much of the content of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are devoted to the last six months or so of Jesus' life and ministry. Our text this morning from Matthew chapter 16 uh, takes place about two and a half years into Jesus' ministry, which means it's about six months before the crucifixion. And what you realize is that what happened as Jesus approached the cross was the most important. And also what you realize is that these encounters with Jesus Peter had, the most significant encounters took place during that latter portion of Jesus' life and ministry. By the time you come to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' popularity has already peaked and begun to wane. He was under heavy criticism from the Jewish religious authorities. And the people as a whole just didn't know quite what to make of this itinerant preacher and his motley group of 12 apostles who followed him around. There was growing skepticism about Jesus. And now Jesus began to withdraw more and more from the crowd so he could spend more and more time alone with his disciples. Well, here we find in Matthew 16, Jesus probing the 12. He is trying to determine how much they really understand about him and his ministry. Uh, but what we find here in this text brings us face to face with the most important and the most ultimate question of life. And that question is, who is Jesus Christ? Your answer to that question determines your eternal destiny. Your answer to that question determines whether you will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. That question is the most important question that you can ever be asked. Who is Jesus Christ? So after two and a half years of tutoring these 12 apostles, Jesus decided here in our text, apparently, it was time to give them something of a progress exam. 
Jesus wanted to see how much progress they had made in understanding and grasping the truth of who he was and what he came to do. So we find several, just a couple of things in our text this morning. First, we see the probing question that Jesus asked them. He actually asked two questions in our text. The first question was more general. The second question was more specific. Jesus and his disciples, the text tells us in verse 13, are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, if you've got kind of a general uh, idea of, uh, of uh, Israel in your head from your Bible maps, uh, Caesarea Philippi was about 25 miles north, a little bit northeast, but more north, due north of the Sea of Galilee. It was about 40 miles from Damascus. So we're in the northern part of Galilee, all right? If you go west, you come to the city of Tyre. That's where Caesarea Philippi was. It's, it's, it's what is now southern Syria. Ever heard of Syria? It's a lot in the news today, isn't it? A very untranquil place. Well, in, in Jesus' day, it was a lot more tranquil. It was a beautiful plateau. It was really in the shadows of Mount Hermon. There was just a few miles to the north, which, which went up 9,200 feet. And here, Jesus is with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And when they were there alone, Jesus asked them the question into verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus was kind of taking a, a public opinion poll based on what his disciples had heard people saying about him. Now the disciples uh, had some ready answers to that question. They had been out and about. They had heard what people were saying. Uh, they knew the questions people were asking. And we find their answer in verse 14. Well, they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, can't you imagine Jesus there with the twelve, and he asked this question, who do people say that I am? And they start one by one kind of peppering Jesus with these answers. You know, I, I kind of envision each of the twelve wanting to have something to say to add to that conversation to let Jesus know they heard something that someone said about him. As you think about those answers, there's a common thread that runs through them. Everyone knew there was something unique and special about Jesus. That simply could not be denied. But here, the people in general, the people who've heard Jesus, the people who've seen Jesus, are lumping him together with the Old Testament prophets. They assumed that because of what Jesus said and because of what Jesus did, he must be one of the Old Testament people reincarnated. Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, or even perhaps John the Baptist, who had been beheaded by Herod. Now, each of those answers, or each of those opinions that people had about Jesus, shows that they still thought he was the forerunner to the Messiah and not the Messiah himself. He said he couldn't deny the supernatural power 
that Jesus had because they saw his miracles. They couldn't deny his, his authoritative teaching because they even admitted that he didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one having authority. But they just could not bring themselves to accept him as the Messiah. They couldn't embrace him as the Savior. And even though they saw so much in Jesus that pointed to the Messiah, they couldn't bring themselves to take that leap and accept him as the Messiah. So the first question was, who do people say that I am? What do people think about me? But that's not the real question Jesus wanted to ask. That was just the setup question for Jesus to get to the real question he wanted to ask the 12 apostles. What he wanted to ask them was what they thought about him, what their opinion, what their evaluation, their assessment of him was. You see, it was one thing for them to report what others, what those out there were saying about him. It was another for them to give Jesus their own honest opinion and assessment of who he was. So Jesus turned to them and said, but who do you say that I am? Now again, that's a question that comes to each one of us. When it comes to your soul and the state of your soul, it really doesn't matter what other people say about Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people think of him or what other people believe about him. What matters is what you think of Jesus and what you believe about Jesus. You see, when you stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment, it won't do any good to say, well, my grandmother believed that Jesus was the Savior. My mother was a, a faithful Christian. My father was a praying man who never missed church. You can say that all day long. But ultimately the question will become to you, but who do you say that Jesus is? You see, it is a personal matter. Faith in Christ is a personal matter. No one can believe for you. You must believe for yourself. No one can have faith for you. Well, you must have faith yourself. And so here Jesus comes to the twelve. These men he's been tutoring for two and a half years. He makes no assumptions that they have got it right. And so we ask them the most important question. Who do you say? that I am. Well, as usual, it was Peter that spoke up for the twelve. Peter, as we've seen, it was the impetuous one. He was the reactionary in the group. And so Peter declares in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I've said in this little series of sermons that sometimes we see Peter at his best and sometimes we see Peter at his worst. Here, we see Peter at his best. 
Peter got it right. Peter understood who Jesus was. Now, I'll give you a little warning. When you come to the next little section that we're going to look at next Lord's Day, you see Peter at his absolute worst. And I'll get a little ahead of the game probably for next Sunday, but isn't that so true of us? Just when we think we've got it right? That's why the Bible says that take heed lest you fall. Pride goes before fall. Here, Peter, however, gets it right. We see Peter at his best. Now, again, you need to understand the significance of what Peter is saying here when he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. You're the promised one. Because, you know, Peter and, and the other disciples here, they had the same expectations of the Messiah the others did. The other Jews had. You know, they were expecting a conquering king, someone to come and overthrow Rome and set them free and establish his righteous kingdom on earth. And when Jesus didn't use his divine powers to accomplish that, that's why people were so dismayed and skeptical. This can't be the Messiah. This isn't what we're expecting. This is not what we're looking for. And they just couldn't make that leap to say, he is. You see, the humility of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus, was contrary to what they were expecting in the Messiah. But here, Peter makes that leap. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the one we're expecting. You're the long-awaited prophet. You know, it wasn't just the regular Jews or the Jewish leaders religious authorities had their doubts about Jesus but John the Baptist did remember when, when John was in prison he sent a delegation to Jesus saying look are you really the one we're waiting for or should we look for somebody else and, and so I want you to see the significance of what Peter is saying here the, the general Jewish population didn't say this the Jewish religious Leaders certainly didn't say it. The scribes and Pharisees certainly didn't say it. John the Baptist had questions about it. But here Peter makes this declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is at his very best. And then second, we see the positive response that Jesus gave to Peter. And he began by pronouncing a blessing on him in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You are blessed. Why the blessing? The blessing was because Peter got it right. The blessing was because Peter understood it. The, the, the blessing was that, that Peter realized that Jesus really was the Christ. And that blessing comes to all of us who get it right, who understand the truth, who grasp the reality of the gospel, who understand who Jesus is and are in a right relationship with him. Folks, that's the most blessed state in which you can be. Blessed are you if you are in Christ today. Blessed are you if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation today. And that's what Jesus is saying to Peter here. Blessed are you. You're a blessed man, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John. Blessed are you. But lest Peter 
should begin to think good of himself or too much of himself, lest Peter think that, boy, I have really done something uh, significant here. I've really achieved something here. I've really figured it out on my own here. Jesus gives him a word of caution. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Why did Peter make this declaration of faith that so many others did not? You know, Jesus performed miracles in front of thousands. He fed 5,000 at a minimum, remember? He taught to these large groups of people. There were many people who saw what Peter saw and who heard what Peter heard and did not come to the conclusion to which Peter came. Why not? Because God revealed it to Peter. That's what the Bible says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't point this out to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's a basic biblical truth, isn't it? That if we're going to see the truth, God's got to show it to us. If we're going to understand the gospel, God has to enable us to do that. The Bible says, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind to the truth. There are none righteous, Paul said. No, not one. None seek for God. And the only way for any of us to come to faith is for God to give us that faith. For God to show us the truth, just like he showed it to Peter. See, the flesh and blood there refers to our own human efforts and abilities. Flesh and blood can't do it. If the Bible's clear on anything, it is just as a leopard can't change its spot, so a sinner can't change his own heart. That's why Peter said, or Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born from God or born from above. Salvation is something that God accomplishes. He opens our eyes to see the truth and our ears to hear it and our hearts to receive it. But there's more to this positive response here that Jesus gave to Peter. If you go and look at verses 18 and 19, there Jesus makes one of the most profound statements you ever find in the scripture. Look at verse 18, where he says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now Jesus is making a very clear connection there between Peter and the church, isn't he? And you might remember that when uh, Andrew... It was Peter's, it was Simon, his name was Simon then. When, when Andrew came to faith, he went and found his brother Simon and brought him to, to uh, Jesus. And Jesus said, your name will no longer be Simon, but your name will be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Peter, your name is Peter. My Peter. In the Greek, the word Peter, the name Peter comes from the Greek word petros, which means rock or stone. 
So don't you miss the connection here, the nuance of the language, where Jesus says to him, your name is Peter, or your name is Rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now there's a definite connection between Peter and the church, but we need to understand what that connection is. For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has maintained that the church is built upon the person of Peter or on Peter himself. He, therefore, they believe, is the, the first pope of the church. The papacy descends from Peter. That's why the, the church holds the pope in such high regard, why he holds such a revered position in the Catholic Church. He is seen to be the direct spiritual and ecclesiastical descendant of Peter. But is that really what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus really saying that Peter himself is the foundation of the church? Folks, I certainly hope not. Because as we'll see over the next few weeks, boy, Peter had some real moments of doubt and struggle. If Peter's the foundation of the church, we don't have much foundation. You see, you got to keep everything in its context. Ever heard me say that before? The immediate context and the broader context of all of Scripture. Remember what Jesus just asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter's made this profound declaration. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the link, that is the link with verse 18. The rock upon which Jesus builds the church is not the person of Peter, it's the profession of Peter. It's not who Peter was, but it's what Peter said. The foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's built upon the, the, the foundation of the, the apostles and the prophets, Paul says, but the foundation, the, the cornerstone, is Jesus Christ. We build the church upon Christ upon that profession of faith that Peter made, you are the Christ. And so Jesus says, upon this rock of what you have said, I will build my church. And then Jesus goes on in verse, into verse 18 to give a promise. And it's this. When the church is built upon the right foundation, even hell itself can't over. When the church is built upon the foundation of Christ, nothing can destroy it. And that's not to say the church doesn't go through ups and downs. The church doesn't go through some real trials and tribulations. The church certainly does. The church has through history. But the promise of, of, of Christ himself is that the gates of hell shall not overcome the church. That's why we try to be a Christ-centered church, a Christ-focused church, because Christ is the only foundation for the church. 
That's why we have, try to have Christ-centered preaching in our church. It's because Christ himself is the foundation upon which you can build a church so it will not ever be destroyed. And then he goes on to talk in verse 19 about giving to him and to the, the church what he calls the keys of the kingdom. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. People have scratched their heads for centuries saying, what in the world are the keys of the kingdom? I think it's simple. Here it is. This is the key to the kingdom. How do you get in the kingdom? You get in the kingdom by embracing the gospel. Don't you understand that every time the gospel is presented, there's an opportunity for someone to unlock the kingdom. When someone responds to the preaching of the gospel, they are loosed from the bonds of sin. When someone resists the gospel, they're bound tighter in the grips of sin. Jesus has to give you the keys of the kingdom. What are you loose on earth? When someone comes to faith in Christ, it means they've been loosed in heaven. When someone is bound on earth, is they're bound in heaven. I told the, the elders at Presbytery Friday night, I said, being an elder in the church is serious business. Being an elder in the church is serious business. Because God has given the church the keys of the kingdom. The church isn't just about activities, doing different things. The church is about the gospel. The church is about the souls of people. The church is about your soul. The most important thing we do as elders in the church is watch over and care for your souls. And we do that through the gospel. You see, your involvement in church is serious business. Oh, I want you to be here. I notice when you're not here. I want you to come. I don't want you to come for church just for the sake of coming to church. This is the point. I want you to come to church because you're concerned about your soul. Because you want to, to be able to stand before God one day and give a good account of yourself and your progress in the gospel. That's what we're about here. It's the good news of the gospel. And the key is the kingdom. The building of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To hold fast to your profession. Be able to say with, with Peter to Jesus, you're the Christ. I know you are. I believe you. I trust in you. I give my life to you. And I promise the blessing is yours too. Pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Peter's declaration of faith.
May that be ours today. May we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ. And may that change and transform us, who we are and what we do and how we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.